Well, that is not the way you should view your life. It may be true, and it's not to make it less than what it is. Well, I guess it is to make it less than what it's become to you. But it's not to deny the truth of it. It's simply to say, that's not the most important way to view your life. And he begins by saying, there is a great audience before whom you are now living. And he's now going to encourage them to change their thinking. He's, there's a great arena filled with the faithful of God who have followed God through the ages that are viewing you in a sense, although we know they're not literally viewing us. In fact, it's probably more accurate to say rather than that they are looking at us, we are looking to them for encouragement. For those that have gone before us, we see how they lived. And he is now saying to them, live the way that they lived. Begin to live your life through the same, in the same context to which they lived their lives, the same way they interpreted their life. And then Hebrews 11, which Matt taught last week, lists for us the ways that these men and women interpreted life. Brothers and sisters, I cannot overemphasize how important this is. The way that you understand the context of your life is the way that you'll interpret what's happening in your life. And I'm going to meet, tell you what I mean by that and more in a moment and what, how we are to do that. And he's saying now is the day, to use his analogy, when you are running a race. Almost before them, in a sense, with their shouts of encouragement to continue on. These are men and women who lived by faith. That the writer does not just see them as dead men and women to be remembered, but as living, listen, witnesses to be heard. And he even says this in chapter 11, verse 4. He says, though dead, in a sense, they still live. When he speaks of Abel. And he says of Abel, through his faith, listen, Hebrews 11.4, regarding Abel, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And this is his point here in the beginning of chapter 12. This is the arena. It's the same arena that these men and women lived in. All the saints of the Old Testament, all the saints that had gone before these men and women to whom he's writing, and now for us, 20 and 21 centuries later, all the men and women of faith that have lived after the cross, these are men and women who, whose lives we must see and whose lives we must emulate regarding their faith and regarding the context that they viewed life in. Regardless of where they lived in the world and when they lived in the world. It doesn't change. Certainly the circumstances change. Certainly the earthly context changes. But the whole overarching context of the life of the Christian doesn't change. From the time of Esau and Abel, to the time of now. It's the same context. And this is how we are to view our lives. We belong to this whole company of God's faithful followers who live in this world but are not of this world, glorifying our God through our faith. 
And this is how we are to live our lives as well. Living it before those who have gone before us. Living it before those who now live. Knowing that those that have gone before us, in a sense, the writer says, surround us as we live out our lives and, and, and are an arena for us to be encouraged and strengthened by. It's interesting in this verse, if you look at verse 1, he says we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The word witness went through a semantic change in the Greek with the writing of, of the Bible. The Greek word sounds, if you read it and look at it, when you sound it out phonetically, looks like the English word martyr. And in fact, it is translated in many places in the New Testament as martyr rather than witness, depending on the context in which it was written. The word initially began in the Greek language as the word witness, but it went, underwent a semantic change to become synonymous or to be used with the word martyr as well. It changed. Interesting. Because there are a number of examples in the New Testament where the word witness was clearly being speak to, used to speak of the martyrdom of the believer. For example, in Acts 22.20, 20, when Paul is speaking, he says uh, regarding the blood of Stephen, he's praying. He says, Lord, regarding the blood of Stephen, your witness. And in his mind, Stephen's witness was that ultimately of a martyr. Revelation 2.13, the Lord speaking to the church in Pergamum, says, Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. What's the point? The point is simply this, that the race that we are running demands, listen, total devotion and commitment. Even if necessary unto death. There's no other way of saying it than this. This is what the writer is implying. This is the context in which we view our lives now. Total devotion and total commitment at any cost. Whatever it costs. Now, all of us are in different places in our own lives with our ability to say what we're willing to pay. But he is saying this is the goal. This is the call in a sense, and I'll get to that in a moment. But this is the context now in which we are to live this, this Christian life. You are not first an American. You are not first a, 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 a Hispanic. You are not first, a, a, you know, a, an educated intellect with a Ph.D., you are not any of these things first. First, you are a devoted follower of Christ. And my life must fit into that. And then everything else is up to God by the grace of God and through what I choose as I follow God to determine the way my life is lived out. But when the rubber meets the road, this is who I really am. Above all, come hell or high water. And trust me, they both are coming. Let's consider the calling also of the Christian life because he speaks of it at the end of verse 1 when he says there is a race. He says there is a race that is set before us. He says let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
Now, I'm going to make a very important statement right now, and you might want to write it down, but at least put it in your mind. The goal of the Christian, the goal in our Christian maturity, the goal in our Christian maturity is to come to the point where you allow faith to set the course of your life rather than you setting your own course. The goal of the Christian life is to come to the place where you allow faith to set the course of your life rather than you setting your own course. I have shared this story with you guys before. Please forgive me if you've heard it. And I'm going to use myself as an example, which I don't want to do too much, but I need to in this case. I had one event in my life that absolutely set the course for my life after I was converted to Christ. I had been, Kath and I were married. We had two small children. We were living in Santa Barbara. I was a fireman at the time. We owned a little home in Santa Barbara. I had a wonderful life. I got a call to teach in a Bible college in the mountains of Southern California in Lake Arrowhead. We prayed, felt this was the call of God, didn't know what it meant fully, made a decision to sell our home and to move. And we did it. We left Santa Barbara, moved away from my family, moved into the, this place to teach in a Bible college, and we got to the place to teach, and I find out I did not have a job after I had sold my home, quit my job as a fireman, and moved my family. There was no job. So I went to prayer and fasting, and I was sitting. I can, I'll never forget this. This set the course for my life. I was sitting on a hill praying, fasting one day. And go back with me to Hebrews 11 with me for a moment. Turn there. And I was praying and I was reading the scriptures and I was reading in Hebrews and I was in Hebrews 11. And I got to verse 13. And I, 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 the Lord didn't speak audibly to me, but I knew it was God as I was reading this speaking to me. He said, these all died in faith in verse 13, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And this was the verse. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. And I felt the Spirit of God speak to me and say, if you really want to find a way to get back to Santa Barbara, you will. And I thought, great. And I have to tell you that what happened was amazing. We went in and began to live life there. I got a job. I was framing. I was building homes. I was working outdoors in the winter. It was miserable. Kath was not happy. We were, what the heck are we doing? I, Lord, what's going on? I get a call from the Santa Barbara Fire Department, the chief, one afternoon. And he says, if you want your job back, you can have it. 
He said, you can step right back in. We need firemen. We, need, we want you to come back if you want to. I, I thanked him. I sat down. Kath and I looked at each other. We held hands. Sitting on a bed, I can still remember it. We prayed. We prayed and asked God, Lord, is this what you want? We looked up from our prayer. We looked at each other, and we both went, no. We're supposed to stay in here and trust God. That decision that day set the course for my life. That's what led us to be up here. We went from there to, up to Placerville and planted a church, planted one church, came down and planted another church, and have been down here since 1981, in Sacramento since 1981, leading churches. Had we gone back to Santa Barbara, only God knows, we would have had a great life, I'm sure. But we wouldn't have been able to do what we've been doing since we've been doing this. It set the course for our life. And I've looked back on that one decision many times with regret some days and with much thankfulness on many others, mostly that. Just knowing that God in his sovereignty was leading us and in his kindness, he he gave me an option. And I believe he probably gave Abraham one as well. He probably, in his kindness, you know, people ask me all the time, how do I know the will of God? You don't always know the will of God perfectly. Is God sovereign? Yes, I'll talk about that in a moment. But he gives us choices to make because we are human beings. But he wants us to make them with faith. And he will bless faith. And so I know that I could have gone back to Santa Barbara, probably gone back to the fire department and been a fireman and and done whatever that would have led me to do in my life there. And these beautiful grandkids wouldn't be sitting here today. They would just have looked differently. And God would have blessed me because we would have done it still by faith. But I want faith to characterize my life. And I want faith to set the course for my life. And it has. And it continues to as we trust God. Brothers and sisters, Christian maturity is to come to the point where you allow faith to set the course for your life rather than you setting your own course. We don't know where that course will lead us. We don't know what what it will ask of us. We don't know what it will cost us, but we know that it will glorify God as we do our part in obedience to testifying to the faithfulness of God. So many Christians spend too much time trying to figure everything out ahead of time for their lives. Rather than living day by day by faith and just allowing God to set the course of their life because they're living by faith. Give us today what? And Lord, forgive me today because I have sinned against you, I know, at some point. And Lord, keep me from temptation and deliver me day by day by day. The calling of our life as a believer is not what the world determines. It's not what our families hope it will be. It's not even what you might have dreamed of as a children. It is the course that God has set for each of us and his providence to live out. And Paul reminds us of that in Ephesians 2.9 when he says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should now, by faith, I'm adding that, 
walk in them. And so the metaphor that is used in the New Testament is that of running a race. And all of us at one point or other have run. And all of us know how hard it is to run. How good it is to run. And then when you run too far, how hard it is to run. That's the metaphor that is used most often in the New Testament about the Christian life, the calling of the Christian life. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 9.24 when he says, In a race, only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. And regarding this race, Paul says somewhere else, I don't run aimlessly. How many Christians run aimlessly? And the reason is, is because they're setting the course for their own life. And they're bouncing off of circumstances as they set the course, trying to figure out how to best make their way through life, rather than learning to allow faith in God to set the course for their life. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't plan. It doesn't mean that you don't prepare. It doesn't mean that you don't work. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that ultimately you know in your heart when you are trying to control your own life and your own destiny or when you are trusting God for it. He says to Timothy, Paul says to Timothy at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith in 2 Timothy 4. And so the writer to the Hebrews says the same thing to us now. We need to run this race in the same way, knowing that the stands are packed with the saints of old in one sense, cheering us on, although we know they're not actually seeing our lives. But this is the call of the Christian life to persevere and to endure and, and to run, because we understand this context that we are living in, following on the footsteps of those that have gone before. He's exhorting his hearers to, to whom he is writing for, to pay attention. He's exhorting us to pay attention to the testimony of those that have gone before us. Abel is reminding us, listen, of the true sacrifice that we are to trust. Noah is shouting that there is an ark that delivers while the condemned world perishes. Can you hear it? Abraham is shouting for everyone who is following without yet seeing what they hope for fulfilled to continue as he did and to live in a tent and sojourn if necessary. Not maybe literally, but in your heart. Moses is standing encouraging us to forsake the world and all of its favor for something more worthy as we live our lives. Isaac and Jacob are shouting encouragement to continue the pilgrimage and release, re resist the temptation to allow the world's pleasures to defile us. And Rahab is reminding us that there is hope for the sinner. There is forgiveness and life even for those who feel least worthy as we grab the scarlet rope of redemption and hold it fast. That's what he's reminding us of. This is the context that we live in. But there is energy and there is determination and there is action necessary on our part. And so verse 2 of chapter 12 
completely demolishes the cheap grace teaching that permeates the church today. And it needs to be demolished. The teaching that says that we are already forgiven for everything, so why does it matter how we live? Nobody, nobody in this church would buy into that, but you still, you'll live that way sometimes. None of you would ever agree that that's theologically correct, but the, the problem is that we would still possibly feel that way at times. Oh, I did it again. Oh, well, I'm forgiven. Oh, that temptation. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to nurture that a little bit because I enjoy that, but I'm forgiven. No. No. It demolishes the teaching that discourages repentance and brokenness before God and deep sorrow and deep hatred and deep grief for sin. Sin. Not I I failed, not I blew it, I, I sinned. The teaching that will lead to licentiousness and pride and self gratification and a casual Christianity that really isn't Christianity at all. We already talked about the call to Christian life is, is complete devotion. Complete devotion. Complete dedication. Complete. Wholehearted. This is the Christian life that we were called to live. And there's a teaching that promotes this foolish notion that God just wants you happy and that this is really all about you and for your happiness. Mm. No. So far from the truth of the New Testament teaching and the old. He says, he says, lay aside, look what he says in verse one, lay aside every weight. The word lay aside means cast off, put off, throw off. It's not just take it off casually and lay it down. It's like, take that thing off. Throw it off like you're running with something that's weighing you down and you, you realize it's weighing you down and you throw it off. And this, this can lead to a lot of interesting discussions because he's not just talking about only about acts of sin when he talks about hindrances, when he talks about weight. He's not, he'll talk about sin in a minute. He's talking about weight and hindrances that may not necessarily, listen, be sin. And that's probably what most of us struggle with. There are many things in our lives that aren't sin, but they are weight that keep us from running. Can you identify those in your life if you're really honest? I'll bet you can. Probably wouldn't take you long. Each of us have to identify what those are for ourselves. This in, could involve your lifestyle, your career ambitions, the friendships that you hold and have, your habits the attitudes that you have fostered, things that you embrace as just the way I am kinds of things that hinder you from running. But then he not only says that, but he goes on to say we need to throw off and cast off and put off the sin that so easily, and here's the word he uses, entangles, trips us up. And this is much more serious than just a hindrance, and it needs to be understood as such. Hindrances weigh us down. Sin causes you to fall. 
It's one thing to be slowed down. It's another thing to fall. And he says that this sin clings so closely. Some translations say so easily entangle us. And the reason that they cling so closely is because they're within us in our carnal, fleshly nature that is not yet sanctified. It's the areas of the old man, of, of the flesh, that continue to entangle my heart and my mind. And the Spirit wages war against it. Galatians 5 teaches us. And the Spirit will overcome those things as we submit to Him. And the fruit of the Spirit will become the dominant quality of our life. But we need to recognize that these things entangle us. And so He says we must run. This is the calling of the Christian life. We must run with endurance. Steadfastness. Listen again. Constancy. Say that word, constancy. Oh, that we would live with constancy in the Christian life. No. No. Yes, we all feel this way. Of course, we have emotion. Emotion's God-given. It's okay. But it can't dictate and dominate the way that we live. And we need to remember, and we've heard this a thousand times, the race is not a sprint, it is a marathon. But you can hit your stride in a marathon, and if you are willing to endure, you can press through when it gets hard. The context, the calling, and now we must speak of the conformity. He says, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. The beginning of verse 2. And this is the secret of a life of faith, having our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and, of course, not on the world and not on ourselves. I want to read a quote from a man named John Owen. I'll just read it to you. It's this. A constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. The more we behold the glory of Christ by faith now, the more spiritual and the more heavenly will be the state of our souls. The reason why the spiritual life in our soul decays and withers, listen, is because we fill our minds full of other things. When the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory, these things will be expelled. This is how our spiritual life is revived, says John Owens fixing, looking to Jesus. He says that, the writer says he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Founder is better translated the forerunner or the pioneer, the one who has gone before us in faith. Perfecter speaks of the fact that Jesus is the supreme example of faith. We know that, especially since the Greek text here speaks of the faith rather than our faith. This is not just a personal letter to any person taking it personally. He's speaking to a vast majority, the vast number of believers across the face of the earth to whom he was writing. He is the perfecter of the faith. 
He is the inspiration, is what this means, of the Christian faith. He is the supreme example of what that faith looks like lived out. And, of course, the example that the author uses here as the supreme example is that of the cross. Have you ever thought of the kind of faith it took for the man, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross that day? The man. Of course, there was tremendous physical pain, but it was not just physical pain that he bore. He bore unimaginably to all of us. He bore the weight of all of the sin of all men in his own body. And I loved what Hannah prayed when she was praying for the communion today, that he bore the wrath, the wrath of God for me and for you. Because the, the cross, the agony of a cross was not uncommon in those days. Unfortunately, too many people died on a cross in those days. But what Jesus bore that day, no other man up to that day nor, nor other man needs from that day ever to have carried again. He bore that day. Yet, Paul says, for the joy set before him, he endured. He endured. And so the conformity of the Christian life is to not just to the life that Christ lived, but to the death that he died. And Jesus reminded it of, of that when he said, if you would follow me, what? You must pick up your cross. Conformity to me is not just conforming your life to the blessing of living in the grace of God. It's conforming your life to the, to the price of denial of self that comes with following God. Total devotion, total commitment. Consider him. Consider him who endured. And lastly, the cure. The cure. And he says this is the cure for for weariness and for discouragement in the Christian life. Anybody ever feel weary or discouraged? He said, here's the cure. And what's the cure? It's to consider him. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Which obviously assumes that we will inevitably experience weariness and we will inevitably become faint-hearted. Even Deep discouragement that can become spiritual depression is not uncommon in the Christian life. It's a crazy paradox that the more you know God and the more you love God, the more you grieve for the sin and the state of the world. The more you love God, the more you eagerly await his coming, and the closer we get to his coming, the, the more dark the world becomes. And so we live with this ongoing contradiction of, on the one hand, anticipation of great joy, and on the other hand, deep grief at times, 
and frustration. And it's, it's not uncommon to have there become a deep discouragement that can even lead to, at times to spiritual depression. The cure, the writer says, is to consider Jesus in his own struggle as he struggled to overcome the world and its hatred toward him and the enemy and his desire to destroy him and us. And this sounds a lot like the first exhortation at the beginning of the chapter when he says to fix our eyes on Jesus, but it's different. The first term, to fix our eyes, means to basically look away from one thing and to look to another. To consider means to look intently at. So on the one hand, we're looking away from the world and we're looking to Jesus, but then once we've turned to Jesus, we look and we look intently at him so that we might consider him. And what do we learn from considering intently the person and the life of Jesus Christ? First of all, listen, he lived as a son of God. Small s. Small s. This was his identity as he lived on the earth. And amazingly, he had to learn obedience. As a man, we know the writer of the Hebrews already told us this. Although he was a son, chapter 5, he says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Notice the words, through what he suffered. That's the point of the discipline of chapter 12, the teaching on discipline. Because suffering produces endurance. And this explains why the Lord needed to be tested and yet resisted. He had to learn endurance because he had to endure much. You have to learn endurance because you too will have to endure much. He learned obedience when faced with rejection and being misunderstood even by his own family and closest friends. He learned obedience when he was abandoned by those whom he loved the most, who were just simply afraid of following him to the end. He learned obedience when he prayed in the garden that night as a man and he actually sweated blood out of his pores because of the approaching certainty of what he would have to go through. He learned obedience when he prayed that night asking if there wasn't any other way, Father. And the answer was, no, son, there isn't. And so he said, okay, Father, not my will, but yours. You see, your trials and my trials are the Father's training ground for our lives. When I read the word discipline here in chapter 12 and verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. I don't think of spanking. I think of training. I think of more of a boot camp military training. Sure, there is, there is punitive, at times, discipline by God when he's really wanting to get our attention and really wanting to keep us from destroying ourselves and really wanting for us to learn quickly. But usually his discipline is through learning to endure through the trial of living life in a fallen world. So 
Some of these trials seem unbearable. Others are small and short, thank God, and passing. But he knows what we need and what we are able to bear, and he uses them to teach us obedience. And this has always helped me in my life. Remember this. Say this with me. God is sovereign. God is good. Therefore, I can trust that his providence toward me is for my good and for his glory. God is sovereign and God is good. And therefore, I can always trust that his providence toward me in my life is always for my good and for his glory. And sometimes it is a very sad providence. And sometimes it's a glad providence. Either or are still disciplines, in a sense, to teach us to trust God and know that God is good and that God is with us and God is for us. Because it is for discipline that you have to endure because God is treating you as sons and as daughters because he loves us and he's preparing you to live your life and to be able to run the race all the way to the end so that you don't stop, so that you don't lose your way and fall and quit or at least waste, waste this life on foolishness and on empty worldly pursuits. It's a joy to live in the world we live in. God is good. He's blessed us with so many good things, especially in this nation that we live in, in the time in which we're living. We are blessed. But don't lose your life in those things. And so he closes in verse 12 and 13 through the end, and I'll close with this. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In a nice way, he is saying, come on, buck up. That's what he is saying. Lift your hands, lift your face. Lift your eyes, behold him, consider him, strengthen your, listen, strengthen yourself, look where you're headed, and don't allow what you're experiencing to tear you down because of your vulnerabilities, but rather be healed. Be healed in Jesus' name. Don't see yourself always as weak and as beaten down and as vulnerable Strengthen yourself, he says. And if you're not able to do it, have someone help you, pray for you, encourage you. We need each other, don't we? And again, the author uses the example of someone of old, but this time he uses it in a negative way. He says Esau sought God's blessing, but without repentance. And he became bitter, and he failed to obtain the grace of God. And we need to guard our hearts as well. And we need to encourage and guard one another's hearts as well because we are in this together to the very end. So brothers and sisters, consider him who endured. And let that be for us a strengthening in our lives 
in the days in which we are living, in the days in which we may be living, as we live out this life, it doesn't matter. It will never be easy. It doesn't change. The call is to total commitment and total devotion. No half-stepping. No half-stepping. We're in this together all the way. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, please. God is sovereign. God is good. And therefore, I can trust that his providence toward me is always for my good and for his glory. Always. We know that he is sovereign. We never struggle with that. Sometimes we wonder if he's really always good. But we've already settled that, haven't we? We know he's good. The biggest issue is the providence. That his providence toward us is always, always for our good. Romans 8, Paul says that therefore all things. That's, that's his statement right there. Work together for our good. Father, we worship you today because of the amazing example of the Son of God that you sent to live his life out before us and to live his life for us. And Lord, we give our hearts to you today. If we are able in our consciousness even beyond what we have ever given them, we pray for the grace to live with a total devotion and a total commitment. And I pray, Father, especially for the younger brothers and sisters in this room, that they would come to the point in their own Christian life where they would allow faith to set the course for their life. Faith in you. Faith in your goodness and faith in your providence for them. That, Lord, that they would live by faith daily. And know that, oh, Lord, as they do that, Father, that their life will make such a difference in the world in which they live. And it will be so incredibly satisfying. We thank you this morning, Lord, for everything that we learn in this book, in this incredible book of Hebrews. We're grateful. We're grateful for it. We pray for our nation in this time. For peace, Lord, we pray that you would still the hand of the enemy where there would be violence and where there would be chaos and where there would be uh, suffering of people that is uh, unnecessary and unduly. We pray, Father, for wisdom for leaders. We pray, Father, for truth and for righteousness to reign and prevail. We pray that you would keep the enemy far from us. Lord, that the Spirit of God would, would hover over this nation. And Lord, over the nations of the earth, we know that your will is being done. Help us to know how to pray. Help us to see, O oh God, that we might pray with more effectiveness. We love you. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.